Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. Emily Booter. I'm John Fusco. And we're all here on July 20th, 2017. On this week's show, What Filmmakers Should Note About the Emmy Noms, a trio of stories about a crucial onset issue, Killing Ground director Damien Power on how his newly released film got made, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's show from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. And as always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. Something that's happened since our last show is that the nominations for the 69th Annual Emmy Awards were revealed last Thursday morning as we were recording. And so I will quickly recap here today. Many of the trends we've discussed on this show were proven in the nominations, like the rise of both high-quality episodics and of streaming services. For instance, there was a bigger ballot than normal from which the nominees were chosen. The drama series category had the largest number of submissions with 180. And even more noteworthy is that of the seven nominees ultimately chosen for that category, four are from streaming services. If you're good at math, like John Fusco, you will note that that's more than half. To get specific, they are The Crown, House of Cards, and Stranger Things from Netflix, and The Handmaid's Tale from Hulu. An indie tie-in here is that the premiere episode of Handmaid's Tale was directed by indie filmmaker and director Reed Morano, and we have an interview with her from South by Southwest on NoFilmSchool.com. Another thing worth noting for you genre filmmakers out there is that TV might be your space if it's awards you're after. While the Oscars consistently snub sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, The Emmys have embraced them more each year. Look at this year, with Westworld tied for the most nominations with Saturday Night Live at 22 each, which, by the way, was a surprise to me. I don't know about you guys, but it was like Saturday Night Live coming back. Mm. Anyway, um, and also dystopic shows like Stranger Things and Handmaid's Tale are joining Westworld in the Best Drama category. So we have lots of interviews with nominees on the site, including the DPs of Westworld and Atlanta, another show that did well in the nominations. So we will link to those in this week's podcast post. And of course, you can watch the Emmys hosted by Stephen Colbert live on Sunday, September 17th at 8 p.m. Eastern time. And we will have coverage for you then. The leftovers got boned completely. That expression. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. You don't like that one? No. <laughs> the leftovers got screwed. No nominations. Sad. Sad. That was a pervasive opinion among other uh, critics and writers, too, that that show really got left over. And Mm. girls. Huh? You guys? Girls? I actually haven't been watching girls, so IDK. Okay. But Insecure (laughs) is another one. Insecure is a female-fronted HBO show that also got left out this year. Still, a lot of high-quality stuff that I can actually get behind. Now I want to see The Leftovers, too. Like, this might actually help them with viewership because everybody's talking about it. Well, and everybody is John Fusco. Just get through the first season, people. That's... Yeah, I watched the first two episodes and was like, nope. It's worth it. Okay. Does anyone here in this room feel like we're living in a time warp? Because I do. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Cricket? How so? <laughs> I guess. Okay. Well, okay. I I have three reasons for thinking that this is actually a valid theory. Okay. Three. Yes. (laughs) One is let me lay them out for you. Sure. One is that. (laughs) (laughs) One is that another Pirates of the Caribbean movie just came out. So that just means that we are living in a time loop. Also, it's almost the end of July. 
Like, seriously, how is that possible? And that means that the Sundance Film Festival is in six months. And I literally feel like we were just there, like, trying not to fall into snowbanks and trying to order delivery and failing miserably. So. Yeah. Stuck in a space-time continuum thing, definitely. Yeah. Totally science fiction-like. I agree. Yesterday, Sundance announced an entirely new section of the festival called Indie Episodic, a TV-centric program that will, quote, include stories told in multiple installments with an emphasis on independent perspectives. So in previous years, Sundance has screened episodic programming before, such as OJ Made in America, Transparent, Top of the Lake, and The Jinx. But all of these were part of the special events section and therefore out of competition. Of course, this addition signifies a step toward legitimizing episodic content, and it will now be eligible for Sundance Awards. I wonder how they're going to categorize an episodic as indie, since they're sort of inherently somehow studio-based and funded. That's a question we should look into. The festival also announced a new competition category called, quote, Festival Favorite, Singular Favorite, which will be awarded to the feature film in the lineup that receives the most audience votes. This was kind of curious to me because this is in addition to the festival's existing category audience awards, which are awarded to only films in competition. So I guess that's the distinction. Uh, These can be awarded to any film in the lineup, not just in competition. So I kind of wonder whether this will change anything about the Sundance hype machine or if it's absolutely pointless and nothing will come of it. Only time will tell. So the popular series The Walking Dead is a scary show, but it experienced any production's worst nightmare behind the scenes. Last week, one of its regular stunt performers, John Berniker, died after landing on his head and neck during a stunt that involved falling from a 20-foot balcony. Berniker was a very experienced stunt performer, having worked on The Hunger Games, Logan, and many more. And as series showrunner Scott Gimple said in a press statement, John's work on The Walking Dead and dozens of other movies and shows will continue to entertain and excite audiences for generations. Particularly as filmmakers, we were so sorry to hear about this loss, as we know that stunt people are often the unsung heroes of productions. And it leads us to a couple other stories about on-set safety and stunts. That's really tragic. And do we have any idea why that happened or how that was allowed to happen? Yeah, there was a whole mechanical uh, explanation out there that basically... He had essentially a bad jump from the balcony, and he tried to steady himself by grabbing on to the base of the balcony. In doing so, his momentum sort of swung him up. He hit his head on the bottom of the balcony, and then he oh my and God. then he fell. And he he didn't die on the spot. He actually went to the hospital and um, oh, and man. died there. So it was really just awful. Man, that's really really sad. Um, I guess while we're on the topic of stunt choreographers. You may or may not be surprised to learn that there are actually specialty subdivisions within the craft, and they get pretty damn specific. In fact, some stunt choreographers specialize in simulating rape scenes. As you might expect, business is kind of booming on that front, with major TV shows like Westworld and Game of Thrones and blockbusters and indie movies alike, such as Elle, Nocturnal Animals, and Don't Breathe from the past year, featuring prominent rape scenes. We often think of how the actors feel while performing a rape scene, but what about the stunt choreographers who actually make the on-screen rapes happen? This was something that April Wolf over at LA Weekly has written an extensive piece about, for which she interviewed multiple female stunt choreographers who were understandably kind of ambivalent about the high demand of their work. One of them was Devin McNair, who said she never meant to be a specialist in rape scenes, but was kind of forced into it by virtue of her gender and the fact that she was a stunt coordinator. McNair admitted, 
quote, if I do less rape scenes next year, that's okay by me. Can I can I ask how her gender plays into this? They they want um women working with women who are being raped and oftentimes okay. it's women being raped in uh television shows and movies. Yes. <laughs> Countless articles have been written about the very legitimate argument that rape scenes can often be crutches for lazy writing, and Wolf addresses this, writing, quote, It's not so much to ask that screenwriters, directors, and producers ask themselves these questions before adding to that number. Are you the right person to tell a rape story? What does this scene illuminate? And also remember that there are skilled professionals like Devin McNair who ensure the scene's realism and safety. And it's also worth considering whether there isn't some fresh, more interesting stunt you'd like to see McNair attempt in your film, end quote. And while we're on the topic of onset safety and how to protect your cast and crew, a quick update on the Sarah Jones trial. You may remember back in 2014, the tragic death of 27-year-old camera assistant Sarah Jones on the set of the independent film Midnight Rider. Last spring, we reported on this show about how the film's director, Randall Miller, became the first filmmaker in history to be convicted and incarcerated for an onset death, after pleading guilty to criminal trespassing and involuntary manslaughter along with the film's unit production manager and first AD. Sarah was struck and killed by a train while filming on a railroad trestle, and the latest news is that a Georgia jury found the train company, CSX, liable in Sarah's death, awarding the family $11.2 million. We imagine that some of those damages will go toward the organization that her family started called Safety for Sarah, Their website, safetyforsarah.com, has all sorts of suggestions and resources for things you can do to help ensure safety on your own sets. And given the news of this week, I hope we're all reminded to be vigilant in the protection of the people who work on our films. Amen. How was the train company found liable for that? Because I feel like it would be the responsibility of the UPM and the like first AD in the film studio or whatever. They should have coordinated. But from my understanding, what happened is that there was a plan, this was planned, Um, the train company was not somehow not aware of it or the message was lost in translation somewhere, and the train didn't stop until five seconds after it hit the production. Hmm, okay. Interesting. Basically, everyone was irresponsible. So unless you've been living under a rock, and in a way, if you have, I'm kind of envious of you because it's probably pretty cool down there compared to in this podcast booth, you know that horror auteur George Romero died early this week at the age of 77. He was most famous for the seminal indie classic Night of the Living Dead, which he shot DIY for $115,000 after having trouble breaking into Hollywood, the more traditional route. In an obituary we published on nofilmschool.com, Scout Tafoya writes, quote, He and three friends hatched a DIY plan. They'd make a cheap movie that they could play at drive-ins in order to garner attention from Hollywood. This independent model would become the basis for some of the biggest blockbuster successes of the 21st century, make an indie that plays at Sundance, get plucked by the majors like a college athlete. And Romero was one of the first indie filmmakers to pose a threat to Hollywood, formally as well as financially. Tafoya notes that Romero will be remembered for his dedication to the underdog, both in the entertainment landscape and in a much broader sense too. His films were socially progressive for their time, featuring characters who suffered from PTSD, homeless people trying to make ends meet, feminist women, and many criticisms of violence and war, and also racially diverse casts. Romero, we wish you some peace and rest among the undead. And while we wait for Romero's zombie, here's Charles Hayne with some gear news. All right, in gear news this week, first up we have a field test from cinematographer Loretta Provost uh, of the new Lumu light and color meter that works with your phone. So 
metering, especially color metering, is a super hot space at the moment with a whole lot of competition. And、uh, Loretta's experience with the Lumu was generally pretty good. One point she made, which I think is really key, is how wonderful like the really small size of the unit is. It really is the kind of thing you can like leave in your bag or in your pocket, and it's always there for you.、Uh, she pointed out that she's like, you know, I'm always leaving my light meter places on set, and I think that's really true. But you keep your phone in your pocket, and having it with you, I think, is a nice little addition.、Uh, we're going to be reviewing some of the other light meters that are、uh, coming down the pike, so be on the lookout to see those as they come out. Up next,、uh, Film Power has released a new gimbal. One of my old film teachers used to say that all you need for a movie is a guy, a girl, and a twist. In the world of gimbals, it seems all you need is a battery and a brushless motor, and you're in the running. But Film Power has added a new gimbal with a twist, which is literally a twist. The support arm holding the camera curves out of the way, so you can see the monitor on the back of the camera. This is one of those like really simple but wonderful design innovations that makes the device. Infinitely more useful if you aren't attaching it to an external monitor. Unfortunately, it looks like it's going to be a hard design to patent. So be on the lookout for all of the competition to integrate a switch or a swivel or a slant or a twist into their design within the next year.、And、then, last up in gear news,、uh, most filmmakers tend to associate the tilt shift effect with dramatically changing our depth of field and creating like a bizarre sense of scale. Uh, most famously, the rowing sequence in the Social Network. But using image shift also has the power to correct for convergence line perspective. That's the thing where, like, you look at a building and it looks like the lines come together as it goes far, far away from you. The upshot in Baby Driver when he's looking up at the building、uh, under the title is a good example.、Uh, and so that's very hard to correct for. But sometimes you want a rectilinear building. So. If you want to do that, Lawa has designed a lens adapter, the Magic Shift, which works with its ultra wide primes to remove perspective shift and perspective convergence in your shots.、Uh, the adapter looks really cool. It even looks like you could potentially shift lenses in shot. I think it'd be complicated to make it smooth, but I'm excited to see somebody buy this and try it. And so you can go from converging one single point perspective. To like rectilinearly correct perspective in shot, which is pretty cool. Damn. All right. Well, let's move on to Ask No Film School. In Ask No Film School this week, Jennifer Daniels asks, "I just formed an LLC for my production company and will be working with my first client over the coming months. I'm curious if I need to have a merchant services in place so they have the option to pay by credit card." My clients are mostly nonprofits, small businesses, and startups. I kind of assume they're going to pay with check, but would love to get some feedback on if you think allowing the option to pay for their final film by credit card would be needed. That's a great question, Jennifer. Especially since most folks are afraid to talk about money and cash flow and payment processing, but it's important for filmmakers to have a handle on it and understand it. So, merchant services, for those who don't know, are like the traditional credit card processors. If you went into like a retail store 15 years ago and they had one of those like big square blocks with a number pad and a slide, that company, that retail store, has set up merchant services with a merchant servicer, a bank usually,、uh, to let them accept credit cards. The salespeople for merchant services are very like slick salespeople. Like four people show up in business suits with packets explaining why merchant services is so wonderful. However. 
If you're not doing a ton of credit card business, merchant services are sometimes not worth the money. So, most of your clients are going to pay by check or direct deposit for their payment. It's pretty much still how business is done because it's going to go to the accounting part department and the accounting department is going to check that the money is there, check that the invoice is approved, and then send out a check or a PO. Accounting departments don't tend to love using credit cards. So you're not going to run into a ton of credit card. But with some smaller clients, you occasionally might run into a credit card. So when you do need to do that, merchant services might not be the best fit because they're going to charge you a recurring monthly fee. And so if you're only doing a credit card like every three months, the monthly fee might not make sense to you. So what a lot of small companies do is they accept something like PayPal or Square or even sometimes Venmo, although Venmo it's technically sort of a reach for the way Venmo works. However, all of these services and, for the record, credit card, even through merchant services, all take some sort of percentage. With small business, it's not uncommon to, to pass that on to your client. So I see on all the time on invoices something like a 2.5% fee for PayPal, checks accepted, which encourages your client to just send you a check so you don't have to eat that 2.5% fee, which on a $10,000 job could be $250, which is, you know, like 20 burritos. So that is totally an option. Now, one caveat to be aware of is that a lot of those apps don't necessarily offer the level of fraud protection that you get from merchant services. So if you turn into a company that's doing credit cards all the time, and let's say you become like a color grading company and you're doing credit card payments like three times a week and it's a new customer every time you don't know as well, merchant services might make sense for that fraud protection. But if you're doing credit cards a few times a year with clients you know, like it's a local museum or a wildlife nonprofit and you do films with them over and over and over, fraud protection isn't as big of a worry. And so you probably can skip out on merchant services. One thing to be very aware of, though, especially with new clients, checks can appear as cleared in your bank account two or three days before they actually clear. It's very annoying. Um, so sometimes, even once a big check comes in, you might just want to wait a day or two and make sure it's cleared, especially with a new client. While we're on the subject, I also want to point out that in addition to adding like a 2.5% fee, to use PayPal or Square, which is what PayPal or Square would charge you to use it and allow credit cards, you can also offer a discount for prompt payment. I know some companies that say 1% discount for payment immediately or even 2% because if you have to wait two months for someone to pay you, that ends up costing you money because you might have to put some payments on your credit card or take out a small business loan to maintain cash flow. So that is not uncommon either while we're on the topic of little 1% things on your invoice. Congrats on starting an LLC. Good luck with uh, building your business. Thanks, Charles. My pleasure. Continuing our summer of excellent indie film releases, we've got a bunch to share for you this week. Coming to Netflix, Elizabeth Subrin's debut drama, A Woman Apart, is now available. It features Maggie Siff, who I loved in Mad Men and Sons of Anarchy, in a very authentic-feeling story about a Hollywood actress going through a soul-searching moment. As I said in a post I wrote about the film, the prevailing theme might be our society's paradoxical relationship with actresses, revering them while at the same time refusing them their own human struggles and complexities. Subrin was already widely acclaimed for her short film work, and we did a really great and revealing interview about the down and dirty struggles she had on and offset to get a feature made. So we will link to that in the podcast post. 
Coming to HBO on July 22nd is Hacksaw Ridge, which was a big player at the Oscars last year. Directed by Mel Gibson, people were saying that this would be the movie that would cause people to, quote, forgive the controversial lunatic remarks of his past. Not this person. Not this person either. Indeed, Gibson was nominated for Best Director, and the film ended up winning two Oscars, one for editing and one for sound mixing. The movie tells the story of World War II Army medic Desmond T. Doss, who refused to kill people during the Battle of Okinawa and went on to become the first man in American history to receive the Medal of Honor without firing a single shot. Doss is played by Andrew Garfield, who was nominated for an Oscar for his performance, and I interviewed the producers of Hacksaw Ridge um, around Oscar season. You can check out that interview on nofilmschool.com. And coming to theaters this week, there's a lot in both the indie and mainstream areas. The first one I'm going to highlight is Kuso, which comes out on July 21st, this Friday. It's the musician Flying Lotus's feature film debut, uh, and it's hitting theaters and Shudder this weekend. You may know Flying Lotus from his hip-hop background, but he actually went to film school and released a short called Royal as a precursor to this feature. We just released a podcast with him earlier this week where he talks about how he had to actually mentally unlearn what he learned in film school to get to a point where he felt comfortable making something completely unique. Kuso stirred up some controversy when it premiered in the Midnight Section at Sundance earlier this year, where it was quickly heralded by some as the quote-unquote grossest movie ever made. And I have to agree, it's really gross. There's a lot of pus and bodily fluids and weird prosthetics and deformed people and bugs. (laughs) Oh my god, bugs? It's all the weird things that like get under your skin, like the, the weird gross things that get under your skin more than like... Like literally under your skin? I mean, hopefully not, but yeah. Uh, and it's like, it's that sort of vein more than just jump jump scares and uh, blood and gore, but there's a healthy amount of that too. A lot of poop. And yeah, I mean, like, I don't, I don't really want to say any of what any of the shorts are about because it'll ruin the discovery for you if you actually see it. Um, so it's like shock value. Yeah, definitely shock value. Um, I wrote... On Reddit, actually, after I came back from uh, Sundance, because people were asking about it, I wrote that it was kind of like Cronenberg on bath salts. So it's just like, <laughs> oh my god, yeah, it's it's crazy. I don't get uncomfortable in movies easily, and I was nauseous within the first twenty minutes of seeing it, and I ha- I was like really struggling to get through. But when I did get through it, I felt pretty good about myself. So you have that. Sounds like Emily would definitely give it a five finger rating. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, um, but you should still definitely go see it or try and see it if you have the chance, uh, especially you hardcore horror people uh, will definitely appreciate some of its innovations. Flying Lotus essentially takes four shorts and weaves them in and out together while filling the moments in between with trippy animated videos and original music. It's also got a crazy cast, including Adult Swim staple Tim Heidecker, Hannibal Buress, Anders Holm, and George Clinton of Parliament Funkadelic. You can check that podcast out on the website, on SoundCloud, wherever. Another movie that I saw at Sundance that was also in the Midnight Section that's premiering this weekend, ironically, is a movie called Killing Ground. It's batshit crazy, like Kuso, but it's terrifying in a different way, a tense way. 
Killing Ground is an unorthodox movie in every sense of the word. Audiences will think they found themselves in very familiar territory at the opening as the credits roll off the screen over a happy couple on their way to a romantic getaway in the Australian bush. Sounds like blood is coming. Exactly. To the bush. If it weren't for the fact that the film was premiering in the midnight section, though, you might mistake it for a romantic comedy of sorts. Then again, even with the expectation that something very bad is about to happen to this seemingly idyllic couple, there's no way you can really prepare yourself for what happens next. What happens? Well, (laughs) (laughs) after a night's stay, they begin to realize something is terribly, terribly wrong with their campsite. The sentiment is indeed further confirmed once they discover a dirty, half-dead baby wandering a trail by their sight. <laughs> Ew. So Half-dead? I, I think that's probably all I'll say about the plot to get you guys kind of, uh, I don't know, interested in seeing it. Um, there's a real zombie theme to this show. And there's a real baby theme to movies he's coming He's not out a zombie. Month. The baby is not a zombie. It's just half-dead. It's like very sickly. Thank you, John, for clarifying. <laughs> not a zombie baby. <laughs> It's not a baby driver. It's not a boss baby. It took 11 years to get the film made, and the final effort is really worth checking out. It's definitely one of the best indie horrors of the year. Here's director Damien Power talking about the one step he took that cemented the film would be made after 11 hard years of work. Um, It was a process. So the writing was a process, and then I think um, we had it uh, ready to go, we felt it was ready to go about five years ago. And then uh, none of the shorts that I'd made at film school were of a similar kind of genre. So we decided to make a short to work as a calling card. And so we made a short film called Peekaboo, which is about a woman who loses her young daughter in a car park and thinks her daughter's been abducted. Um, And so it wasn't, you know, plot-wise, nothing to do with um, the feature, but... Tonally and thematically and in terms of showing that I could direct some suspense and action, it was really effective. Um, so that film did really well for us. Travelled to a lot of festivals, um, travelled to... Uh, had We had our international premiere in Busan and that's where I kind of pitched the feature to our international sales agent, Films Distribution. What you did was you sort of made like a spiritual prequel in the sense of tone? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, that, it, yeah. so it was. It was definitely something about it, the the whole purpose was to show that I could direct this script um, that required uh, well a lot of um, action and intensity and but also suspense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also coming to theaters on Friday is Gillian Robespierre's latest dramedy, Landline. If you all remember her hit Obvious Child from a few years ago, this one is similar in its witty, authentic, dialogue-heavy portrayal of everyday human drama. Obvious Child starred Jenny Slate, and so does Landline. This time, Slate plays the big sister to Abby Quinn, who basically ripped off my entire wardrobe from the 90s for the role. (laughs) Overalls, beanie, and waffle shirt in tow. Waffle shirt! I was cool. I was grunge. (laughs) Yes, it takes place in 90s Manhattan and follows the sisters as they uncover the truth behind their father's affair. Probably my favorite acting in the film is done by Edie Falco, who plays their jilted mom and is just so moving and brilliant. I'm having Robespierre and her producer and co-writer Elizabeth Holm on our interview podcast next Monday, and I'm so excited. Go see the film this weekend so you'll be prepared for our conversation. And finally, Dunkirk is hitting theaters July 21st. 
Everyone should know at this point that Christopher Nolan's follow-up to Interstellar, Dunkirk, is hitting theaters on Friday. Unless you live under a rock, in which case, call Emily because... (laughs) I want to come with you. She wants to join (laughs) It's been received by critics with wide praise, most of them saying it's not only the best movie of the summer, not only the best movie of the year, but even the best movie Christopher Nolan has ever made. Nolan, of course, came from humble indie beginnings with his movies following in Memento, but his transition into blockbuster has been exceptional. He's managed to avoid the formulaic studio mold with his movies. Even The Dark Knight and his two other Batman entries can be deemed as standouts from a long line of superhero movies over the past decade. Dunkirk is being called his most well-crafted, tight, and beautiful film yet. It stars Tom Hardy, Mark Rylance, Harry Styles, I guess, and (laughs) Killian Murphy, among others. So see it big, and see it on film, because it's playing on 70mm. At Drafthouse, which I'm seeing it on Friday. Drafthouse and a lot of other theaters around the country, and in film on IMAX, uh, which is crazy. So try and see it in theaters, because it probably will do it justice. Honestly, I'm like so not interested in yet another war movie, but I have to say your little capsule here kind of kind of turned me around, John. I'm so stoked for it. I'm so excited. We should all go together and get alcoholic milkshakes at the Alamo Drafthouse. Oh, too bad I'm already doing that without you guys on Friday. Uh, cool. I'll be to come and sit in the row right behind you, and it won't be <laughs> creepy. <laughs> and now for some upcoming grant deadlines, the Mountain Film Commitment Grant. Wow, what a very interesting... Sometimes I wonder whether we should, you know, provide some consulting services on naming for these grants, but, you know, we'll... No, it's if you're getting married in the mountains and making a film... Um, That grant has a deadline on July 28th, and if you're working on a documentary that touches on mountain culture or the environment, the Mountain Film Commitment Grant will support up to five filmmakers a year with $5,000. Interested parties should apply if they're creating a work that can be presented either in a theater, gallery, or on television and online. So basically any way that you can consume a movie. Mm -hmm. The Southern Documentary Fund Filmmaking Grant has a deadline on July 31st. If you live in North Carolina or have a story set there, you could get $1,000 to $5,000 for development, production, or post from the grant. And now here's some festival deadlines. The Hollywood Now Film Festival <laughs> has a deadline on July 22nd. When? July 22nd. Now. The July 22nd. <laughs> and it takes place on December 9th in LA. Hollywood. So it's not really now. Uh, it's more like... Hollywood December 9th Film Festival. <laughs> Hollywood Later Film Festival. So we'll get on that consultant sort of title thing for that for uh, Hollywood Now too. But hey, winners will have their film screened online at their website and may have an option to be shown on their partner's Roku TV channel as well. At the end of the year, they host a live event where the winners will be invited to receive their awards. How exciting. Uh, it sounds... <laughs> Almost as exciting as this next opportunity. <laughs> Get ready, guys. The Berlin Flash <laughs> film That festival. was good. Flash. I don't know what the uh. fuck. <laughs> Flash. Flash. <laughs> this festival has a deadline on July 25th. So apparently this is a monthly film festival that screens the winner on the last day of every month. The Berlin Flash Film Festival accepts micro, super short films, shorts, and scripts, and... All entries will be screened online by an international panel of flash experts in the film and performance flash industry. At the end of the season, 
Their judges will reconvene and evaluate all of the monthly category winners to determine the overall category winner. And there will be a flash award ceremony and live flash screening held in Berlin. Does anyone flash anyone? That's the important question. Do you get extra points if you flash the judges? I'm pretty sure. That sounds a little misogynistic to me, Liz. <laughs> I didn't say male or female. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I guess. I, or human it, or non human. boobs just went straight to my mind. myself as a judge and someone flashing me. Uh, I wouldn't think about flashing my wiener at those crowds. Mm-hmm, fair enough. Is the deadline for the whole year July 25th and then they choose one each month? Or it's is every, there a month. every month. It's every month the 25th. So oh. the de- this month is July 25th. Well, that's good to know. So if you miss it this month, you could try for next month's. Mm-hmm. Monthly online film festival. <laughs> 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 Tough one. And now on a more somber note, the Portland Film Festival has a deadline on July 26th. This is the early bird deadline. The festival takes place from October 30th to November 5th, 2017 in Portland, Oregon, and features networking, workshops, guest speakers, film premieres, financing talks, director Q&As, and more. The worldwide respected movie maker magazine calls it one of the coolest film festivals in the world. God, I'm I have to say I'm kind of at a loss for words. That was incredibly depressing. Well, it's neither flash nor now. It's just Portland. And bringing us back up. Woo 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 woo. I don't, uh, I don't know if I can go back up after that. That's what he said. Oh, Oh, no. So kicking off our weekly words of wisdom, I put together a super post of advice from summer's hottest indie filmmakers, and it was a really fun trip down memory lane. We did many of the interviews for these summer releases at festivals as far back as South by Southwest last year. So it was cool to revisit the advice and realize what a privilege we have here at No Film School to get these words of wisdom directly from the mouths of top DPs, directors, and crew, and then get to share them with you. One of my favorite interviews from TIFF last year was with acclaimed Israeli filmmaker Avi Nesher, whose film Past Life was released theatrically back in June. Uh, I know we have a lot of international listeners out there, so I think you especially will appreciate this. Past Life's director, as I said, is Israeli, but its DP is French and its composer is Italian. So Nesher said, quote, I cast my crew the same way I cast my cast. I do it by design. I like to bring in different sensibilities. For me, it's truly a collaborative work. I really give my DP and my composer a chance to bring in their own culture into my culture. I really hope that what would come of it would be something truly original. And he continued to say, cinema's been around for a hundred years, and people say that every story known to mankind has been told. And I'm not quite sure it's true. I really think there's a lot of stuff we can explore, and the best way to explore this is by getting outside of our comfort zones and bringing in people from different cultures into your own process. So I think that's something we can all take to heart. I also lifted something from that super post. Um, I... Back at Sundance, I talked to screenwriter Kevin Costello and director Dave McCary, who comprised two-thirds of the creative team behind my favorite movie at Sundance, Brigsby Bear, which comes out next week. Kyle Mooney is the third of the bunch, and together they all came from the bottom, making stupid internet sketch comedy videos from middle school, continuing through college, until Mooney was cast on SNL. Here's what Costello had to say about achieving success from simply sticking to stuff they actually wanted to make. You're going to make shitty videos. I mean, now that phones pretty much have high enough quality to where you can create a, an entire movie with them, like, no, no one is not able to do this. And 
if they really if you really want it just do it and you know I, this, everyone fucking says this this is the worst advice <laughs> what, what is there something more poignant i could say i don't think i mean i i think that it's just like they're making art for its own sake it, uh, it can often feel like uh crazy or insane or or why am i doing this and i feel like we were definitely like in we we've all been in that place with the stuff we've made and um it, it just it, it you you have to do it you have to have something to say and you have to just like trust that um that that desire to get it out there and that desire to make it you know even though there's no clear path towards where it's going to end up or where it's going to lead um just following that that passion i feel like is the only thing you can do yeah. and um and well, at I've the time we started writing brixby it's not like oh yeah we're gonna this is <laughs> you know we're gonna ride this ship all the way to <laughs> right. party town like it was just it was something that i knew that i loved and i just yeah. and it made it a priority so you know. i've got another cliche don't give up yeah great that's <laughs> never heard that one before so. okay so by now many of you've probably seen the netflix original film okja from snowpiercer director bong joon ho and if you're anything like me it probably made you kind of feel guilty about eating meat and maybe want to be a vegetarian uh that's because the beating heart of the film is a genetically modified super pig named okja who's been raised from birth by a farmer in the remote mountains of korea Okja is fantastically rendered on screen as a hippo dog-like creature who interacts seamlessly with the main character, Mija, despite the fact that Okja was merely a stuffed animal or sometimes a pogo stick on set. I spoke with VFX supervisor Eric Jean Debour, whose team at Deluxe Studios in Vancouver pulled off this immensely complex feat. Here's Debour on the process. You know, the, the, the only way that, you know, people are really going to believe uh, Mija and, and, and Okja and, and their little sort of cozy pet friendship is if we have a lot of contact and if that contact is truly believable. And the movie has a lot of really intricate uh, and tender caressing and stroking. And some of that stuff is is really hard to do in CGI. And it took a lot of uh, hard work from all departments in post-production to pull that off. So you have all the mesh moving, then you have the animation, then the lighting. And then, of course, the compositing. And if you think about the, the quality of the contact shadows, uh, the, the lighting, the, all the fidelity that needs to be in the, in the animation to make sure that the live action and the CGI are properly married together and that you can really feel that connection, uh, that is, that is uh, really tricky work. And, uh, and the, the, the team really did a, did a great job. Additionally, DeBoer and his team did extensive research on Okja's facial movement, skin definition, and body musculature. They used dog references, which made me very happy, including Labradors and Vislas, to animate the facial performance. But they had to rein it in at some point. DeBoer said it was really easy to over-animate or go too cartoony on this, so you really had to restrain yourself. For the scenes where Mija is interacting with Okja, the film built intricate puppets to match Okja's movements and specific shots. They instructed the actress who played Mija on exactly where and what Okja was doing so that she felt comfortable acting with the puppet. And for the many scenes during which Mija is actually riding Okja, the team built a pogo stick with, quote, all the physicality and momentum and percussiveness that you would expect when you ride a big animal like that, unquote. You can find out more about the process in my article on nofilmschool.com. I actually loved reading that article before I saw Okja, so if you haven't seen it yet, definitely check out the post because it just like makes the it makes the on-screen interaction between Mija and Okja like so much more fascinating when you know the process. Also, I haven't really eaten meat since, got to admit. I haven't seen it, but it's, yeah, it sounds like... 
you should move to Portland and become a vegetarian and then live <laughs> under a rock. <laughs> <laughs> that's the uh All right. The gist that's my words of wisdom for the week. Well, if you're not in Portland but you are on the West Coast, you can check out Comic-Con which starts tonight in San Diego. So, holla to all our geeks out there. A lot of teases and trailers for the upcoming superhero movies are usually released there. So if you're on the ground, send us a note. We would love to get a scene report to talk about on the site or in next week's show. Also, keep an eye out for, uh, I mentioned board games a few weeks ago on the podcast, and there's an awesome board game that's coming out at San Diego Comic-Con. And it's based off The Thing. Uh, and it's made by it's being made by Mondo and I think this board game company called Raygun and so it's like a survival board game based on Carpenter's The Thing which I also wrote a post about this week so check it out so as mentioned earlier I spoke with Jillian Robespierre and Elizabeth Holm from Landline for next Monday's interview podcast which you'll get a chance to listen to before there's another another indie film weekly the pair also work together on Obvious Child, and I think what you'll really appreciate about the episode is that they get into the nitty-gritty about what it takes to successfully complete a second feature, which is often more difficult than the first because of higher expectations and more moving parts. True to their scripts, it's an authentic and honest conversation, and I think you'll learn a lot from it, so check that out on Monday. Meanwhile, as always, rate us on iTunes, subscribe, and whatever sort of podcast app you listen to. Uh, and stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim, 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 Pogo Steak. And I am Yale Booter. <laughs> and we're all at No Film School. Visit us at nofilmschool.com. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>